Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of your work through your servant, Paul. We thank you, Lord, that he suffered very well. And we thank you that in his testimony we learn about how you redeem our suffering. And we don't have a perspective on this like the pagans do. Just chaos producing consequences that are ultimately of no consequence that none of our tears are wasted, that all of it is redeemed for your glory first and for our good. Lord, help us learn these things. Help them set deeply into our souls because we need them. We need this knowledge. It is too important for me to get in the way of it. And so I pray that you give me great clarity. I pray that you drive all distractions from my minds and my hearts, and I pray the same for your people And I pray, Lord, that you wake us all up so that we may behold wonderful things from your word. And I praise you and I thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, It's been a little while since we engaged in our study in the book of Acts. We had a few guest speakers, if you recall. And so because of this, let's take just a moment here to refamiliarize ourselves with where we last were, which was, of course, Acts chapter 9. We had just observed what we acknowledged to be there, the greatest redemption arc in anyone in any age ever, and that, of course, was in Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul of Christ. He was converted on the road to Damascus. His heart was changed 180 degrees. But then after we studied and celebrated Saul's conversion, we honed in on the nature of the condition that would serve to define him. And that, of course, is suffering. And not suffering, generally speaking, but suffering for the sake of the gospel and suffering to a degree that I believe was only exceeded by Christ himself. And his suffering, of course, was brought upon Paul by Christ for the promise of Christ given in Acts 9, verses 15 through 16, which is our text. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. By way of review, his manifold sufferings that we identified and examined were that he went from profiteer to impoverished peasant, was very well paid as an emissary of the Sanhedrin to persecute the church, but then he was so underpaid as an apostle that there were times where he could not afford food, as he wrote of himself. We also noted that Paul lost everyone and everything from his former life. All of his fellowship prior to conversion was centered around hatred of Christ and a rejection of him. And so he lost all of the people that he used to be with. Paul suffered also profound physical distress. We went through that. Five times he received 39 lashes, 195 total The man was mangled as he confessed to the Galatians for the brand marks of the Lord Jesus on his body. Uh, Paul was also seven times in chains, according to Clement of Rome, but by his own hand he was many times imprisoned, and that kept him away from the saints and away from the fellowship of which he wrote so beautifully. Paul was also slandered by his own spiritual children. We look primarily at the example of the Corinthians Paul suffered as a result of his desire to mortify his flesh. Paul 
was perhaps second only to John the Baptist, uh, the greatest pursuer of holiness, of which we know, at least, and so the want of perfect holiness would have been a great source of suffering to him. And then finally, we consider that Paul suffered from extreme anxiety because of his apostolic duties. And I've said numerous times that I believe that this was, in fact, his thorn in the flesh. And you can see his anxiety. It is palpable in his writings. And he really tore himself up with concern for the church. So that is a recap of his sufferings as previously expounded to you. But let me remind you that what I gave you was only one half of the whole. Here's the other half. It is what is uh, going to um, manifest the name of Jesus, how his suffering will do that. And soon we'll address that, but before we do, we need to recognize that the answer to how his suffering manifests the Lord's name strikes at the heart of one of the world's great objections to Christianity, and even more so than Christianity, even theism generically. And that is, if God was good, then there wouldn't be suffering, but there is suffering, so therefore God does not exist. At least he does not exist as you conceive of him, which is good. But this isn't just the atheist's objection to the existence of God. It is also the Arminian objection to the existence of a sovereign God. The presence of evil and the resultant suffering, they say, is in opposition to God's goodness. And so the sovereign God must one way or another be sacrificed on the altar of their misapprehensions. And this is what prompts the Arminian to essentially apologize for God in the form of something along the order of You know, God's really sorry for all that bad stuff that happens and just know that he would stop it if he could, but he unfortunately can't because he forfeited his free will to give us ours, evidently. But as it always goes, when you try to fix God's character as though it needed fixing, it just makes everything worse. Case in point, trying to create distance between God and evil by making evil and suffering that is produced by it pointless. In the Arminian scheme, all the tears that we shed just fall to the ground and salt the earth, and that is the end of it. So divine purpose in it. And because there is no divine purpose in it and divine hand guiding it, there can be no redemption because that requires divine guidance to bring it about to a good end. And so ironically, their solution to the problem of evil and suffering yields the same net result as the atheist denial of God altogether. And that's because the two positions are really actually the same position. And this leads us to one aspect of the Calvinist versus Arminian debate that's commonly overlooked. And that is that there is really only one Christian perspective on God's sovereignty. And it is what is now called Calvinism, what has been called the doctrines of grace or what you could just call a biblical understanding on the subject. Now, I want to be clear, Arminians themselves can be Christians through inconsistency. And I have been consistent on that point. But Arminianism is not a Christian perspective that exists alongside Calvinism. And there's this option or there's that option, but they're, also, they're, they're both uh, under the umbrella of legitimate Christianity. It's not Christian at all. And as a result, the Arminian perspective on suffering that results from their denial of God's sovereignty is also fundamentally atheistic. And to demonstrate this to you, let me simply state the atheist's position on suffering, and then we'll compare it to the Arminian position. The atheist says this, suffering is essentially a consequence of an ungoverned universe. Is that not exactly the Arminian position? Now, the Arminians come at it from a different angle. They would say that the universe is ungoverned by design because God prized our free will over his sovereign rule. But whether God is not or God does not because he will not, the conclusion is still the same. It's all just matter in motion that inevitably results in collisions from time to time. And our suffering is just the collateral damage of molecules bouncing off of each other. And this causes pain and suffering in us, but those collisions are without significance because they occur by the will of man or by accident. But our doctrine of suffering is that a good God allows it, broadly speaking, for His glory. But perhaps more germane to the real objection 
is that because God is sovereign over even all our suffering, He is able to redeem it. Ergo, God is good. Manifest in suffering caused by evil, used by Him to a good end, as opposed to Him simply surrendering us to chaos and the results of it. Suffering, therefore, in a fallen world becomes in the hands of God an implement of great value and is in the end redeemed for a much greater good. And this truth is found preeminently, of course, in Christ. Greater evil has never occurred on earth perpetrated by men than the murder of God's perfect Lamb. And greater good has never come from evil than the salvation of mankind through that. The Old Covenant example, though, that we look at also is that, of course, of Joseph, who was sold into bondage by his brothers, betrayed in a way that prefigures Christ to the end that many souls would be preserved alive through his um, anticipation of famine and the preparation that occurred through him. And since we're studying Paul, it's also found in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, and his statements there, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That is suffering redeemed instead of wasted. And Paul speaks there essentially of suffering as an investment in the life of a Christian to reap dividends in the lives of other Christians because we have been where they now are. For just as the sufferings continuing on of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. That, again, is suffering redeemed instead of wasted. They are suffering for the cause of the gospel, but that gospel is bringing salvation to them. Continuing, or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer. Again, suffering redeemed in sanctification. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that you are sharers of our sufferings, and so also are you sharers of our comfort. And of course, when we're talking about suffering redeemed, the go-to passage for many of us is Romans 8.28, which was also written by Paul. And we know that God causes all things, the good, the bad, the ugly, the horrific, to work together for those, for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. What I've given you so far are glorious truths, but they are broad. And being reformed as we are, we of course already knew much of that, and we certainly knew that suffering is to the glory of God. But do we really deeply understand how our suffering glorifies God? Or does that correct answer to why suffering mask a lot of ignorance? I suspect that it does. And to be honest, it has in me in the past. So what we will study today is exactly how our suffering is redeemed to the glory of God. We'll seek to discern the mechanics of this. And we'll do this through the suffering of Paul and the theology that resulted from it that he wrote in explanation of it. We will let here the man who was mangled for Christ tell us in his own words from his own various different letters and the statements therein exactly how suffering for Christ magnifies the name of Jesus. And even though none of us have suffered to the same degree as Paul, our suffering is the same in kind. And so this will be a personally relatable lesson for all of us we, like him, live in a fallen world. We, like him, have been commissioned by Christ to suffer for his namesake. And Paul wrote of this, Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So that promise that was made of Paul through Ananias was also made by Paul to the Philippians and then by extension to all of us as well. So then, with these things said, what are these specific reasons why Paul was made to suffer for Christ's namesake? Well, the first place to start here is to understand what that reference even means. So, in other words, what's in a name? We've talked about this in the past, but it needs to be said by way of review. If your name is Bill, or Jerry, or Jim, or Dave, or Dave, not much. Not at least in our society. There's an etymology and they mean something, but they don't mean something to us when you 
say that your name is any of those things. But if the name is Christ, it means a whole lot. Because the name of Christ, as it is used here, refers to the character of Christ. So the point in this statement is that the nature, extent, effect, and testimony of Paul's suffering is going to reveal Christ's character to both the church and the unbelieving world. The story of who Christ is is being written through the sufferings of Saul, who becomes Paul. This is about the revelation of who our Lord is. It's somewhat similar to Gomer through her harlotry being a living example of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Well, Saul, become Paul through his suffering, is going to be a living example of Christ's holy nature and especially of his eternal power. And we will now start to examine the various ways in which this is true from Paul's own writings. And the first way is that point number one, suffering legitimates Paul's conversion. And this point is the least specific of all my points to the Apostle Paul, meaning that this is universally true of all Christians. To become a convert of Christianity is not merely to become an adherent to Christian ethics as prescribed in Scripture. It is to become born again, but it is also to suffer as Christ suffered for the same reason. And generally speaking, that reason is righteousness, though not with the same effect, obviously, or to the same degree. And so we are all invited to share in his suffering, to pick up our crosses. And that statement, pick up your cross, is all at once an expression of individuality in suffering because, as we've said not that long ago, it's your cross. And so it refers to your specific suffering that will be unique to you. Paul's cross was certainly unique. And yet because it is a cross, it is undeniably, inextricably linked to Jesus Who on planet earth does not see a cross and immediately associate it with him? And this became the case even in the first century, even as the apostles were writing their epistles. This is already uniquely emblematic of Christ and his suffering. So in a sense, it is your suffering because it's your cross. But it's also shared suffering with Christ because it is a cross. And this point is very well proved by Acts 9.4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's a cross laid upon them by Jesus. Now let's step back for a moment and consider the term apostle, and you'll understand why we did this here in a short while. Apostle has a simple technical definition in Scripture, and that's just sent one. That's all it means, one who is sent out to do something or to say something. But in Christianity, there are two kinds of apostles. And the one that we always think about is Apostle Big A. Well, that's an ecclesiastical designation specific to Peter, John, Paul, etc. And in our next point, we're going to reference this kind. But then there is also Apostle Little A. And although you know no Big A apostles personally, you know lots of Little A apostles because you are one. And all the other people in this church who are Christians are also little a apostles. We are all sent out by Christ, though we do not all hold that very limited office. Now, I raise this for a reason, and that is that a common illustration for our apostolic ministries as rank-and-file Christians is that of a letter. A common analogy is that Christ sends us into the world as postage, as carriers of his message to be delivered to lost and dying sinners and to give them the hope of the gospel. Well, Christ is, of course, a king. And indeed, he is the king of kings. And kings of antiquity used to seal their letters with a royal stamp. And so everybody that saw that stamp on that letter knew that a king had sent it, and they knew which king because each king had a stamp that was unique to him. Well, Christ's seal as king is this. It's suffering. Suffering defined his life and his ministry. Suffering is how he established his kingdom, and suffering is how he marks his citizens or apostles, little a and big alike. And no one other than Christ stressed that more than Paul, but here is just one very clear statement from him on this. Romans eight fifteen through 17, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Oh, wait, you ask, what does glorified mean in that context? Well, it means to receive eternal life. Then you say, but I thought that the only prerequisite for salvation was faith and repentance. Well, of course it is. But suffering is the inevitable result of authentic faith and repentance in Jesus. It will occur if salvation has actually truly come to a person. Now, later we're going to baptize or we're going to immerse in water a new member into this congregation. And as she understands well, this symbolizes identification with Jesus. But identifying with Christ means identifying with Him as the suffering servant as well, because that is fundamental to His nature. So we are baptized as a symbol of immersion into His sufferings, in addition to all the rest that pertains to His nature and His character. And perhaps another good analogy for Christian suffering would be that of a birthmark. Paul literally, again, bore the brand marks of Jesus on his body, but we all bear a brand mark that testifies to our pain on his behalf, whether it is visible in our bodies or it is visible through our circumstances. And these manifest that we are indeed able to cry out, Abba, Father, having received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, the Spirit himself testifying with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And what are we heirs to? Well, we are heirs to a place prepared for us by Christ himself, John fourteen two, where Revelation 21, the tabernacle of God is among men, and where he will dwell among men, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, nor will there any longer be mourning or crying or pain, the first things having passed away. So what is your suffering for Christ, understanding this to be true? Well, you can think of it as the stretch marks on a woman's stomach that remain after she has given birth to testify that from pain came far greater joy. It's the stork's bite on a newborn's forehead testifying that they have indeed been born. And in fact, for us, born for the second time. It is the seal of your king saying, this one belongs to me, and I who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Point number two, suffering legitimates Paul's apostolic ministry. So what is universally true of little a apostles is uniquely true of big a apostles in that it is amplified greatly. Categorically, it is the same, but intensity-wise, it is very much greater. Paul suffered, in fact, more than all the other apostles, but they all suffered horribly. And he relates this fact to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 9 through 13. I think, he says, God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Now, some apostles suffered worse than others, as I've said, but every one of them, except one, signed what would later prove to have been their own death warrants when they became apostles. And that one exception is, of course, the Apostle John who died of natural causes because he was too stubborn to die from having been boiled alive in hot oil and exiled. But in any event, God uh, did not set his seal on big A apostles with a certificate off of the internet purchased for $50, as he uh, apparently does in our day. Rather, when it came to actual Apostles, he sealed them with a truly exceptional degree of anguish in the name of Christ. And Paul knew that his suffering was a seal from God, and he communicated this both to justify his apostolic ministry and to explain the necessity and purpose of his suffering to others. And one such example is found in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5. 
When we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. Point number three. Saul became Paul is an astonishing work of grace, but still an incomplete one because he's still a work in progress. You ready for a sobering thought? Here it is. The greatest missionary in the history of the church, a man of unparalleled personal holiness among all other mere men, except maybe again John the Baptist, was still sufficiently influenced by his remaining sin that he required ongoing suffering as a means to repel him from sin and draw him to Christ. Why is that suffering? Why is that sobering, rather? Well, it's sobering because if he needed suffering in order to be sanctified, how much more so do you and I? Well, indeed. But here is God's explanation to Paul as to the persistence of an affliction that Paul desperately wanted to be rid of. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10. Because of the surpassing greatness of the personal revelations that Paul had received for this reason to keep me from exalting myself that would be what what sin is that exalting himself that's a sin of pride there was given me a thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me to keep me from exalting myself concerning this I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me and he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness So the point of leaving that remaining malady of either a physical or, as I believe it, a spiritual nature in place was to keep Paul humble. Question is, did it work? Was it an agent of humility for him? He has been shown the third heaven and is therefore susceptible to pride, but did this suffering bring him back down to earth, so to speak? You bet it did, continuing in verses 9 through 11. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, i.e. with suffering for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles even though I am a nobody. So on the one hand, he understands that in terms of the work that he is producing for the Lord and the work that the Lord is producing through him, he is second to none. That's a matter of fact. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. On the other hand, he clearly understands that he is nothing more than an instrument. That what's happening through him and the grandness of it and the scale of it is only a testimony to the grace of God because again, I am nothing. But his sufferings, they are allowing him to continue. They are pressing him toward Christ. And they are necessary to do so, otherwise he will drift. This is, in Paul's life, the perspective at work that James so famously commends elsewhere to all other Christians. James 1, 2 through 4, consider it, All joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But Paul himself gives a very explicit statement to the same effect that pertains to all Christians in general as well. Romans 5, 3 through 5. We exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given, who was given to us. And the seed of all that Christian virtue is pain for Christ's sake. We suffer for his name's sake. But when we have lives that are characterized by sin, do we reflect his name's sake? No, we don't. We reflect poorly upon Jesus when we live more like sinners than we do saints. And so he uses this. He uses it in a couple ways, to chasten us and to bring us back when we have strayed. 
But as he did with Paul and his thorn in the flesh, he also leaves things in place to preemptively keep us from straying because he knows that we will in certain respects. So it is both in response to sins that we have committed and it is a check against sins that we would commit if left to ourselves. As Spurgeon said, and this is my very loose paraphrase, suffering amounts to the waves that send us crashing back into God, waves that we need. And again, if Paul needed this, certainly we do as well. So if you're sane, you're not going to want to suffer. That needs to be understood. Nobody should go around, you know, um, as some people do, pretending to be happy about things that cause affliction. But if you're spiritual, you'll not want to rid yourselves of suffering at the expense of holiness. Understanding that it is the Lord's doing, that He has put it in your life for a very good purpose and a very necessary purpose. Suffering is the cost of us shining as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You can think of it as a holiness tax. Okay, and it's even less avoidable in the life of a Christian than literal taxes are for citizens. You may actually get out of that. You won't get out of this if indeed you belong to the Lord Jesus. So instead of the maxim that there are two things that we can't avoid, death and taxes, perhaps we should say that paying the tax of suffering is unavoidable in the life of a Christian if they truly want to die daily to their sin. And of course, if they are a Christian, they will want that. Uh, Point number four, Paul is unbreakable. And that testifies conclusively to the supernaturality of his conversion. Paul is unbreakable. Now, I think that I can say, uh, without the risk of being reasonably called braggadocious, that I am a reasonably well-read guy. And this is especially true when it comes to the realms of religion and philosophy. And as a reasonably well-read guy with respect to those disciplines, I am unaware of anybody who suffered more for any faith than Paul, other than, of course, Christ himself. Now, in a moment, we're going to review his suffering, but before we do, I want you to bear in mind that Paul had the power to end his suffering at any time. Paul could have pulled the ripcord at any moment, and the ripcord here consists of apostasy. He could have just tapped out. He could have said, I no longer regard Jesus as Lord. I am leaving the faith. And I don't have a text for what I'm saying to you now. I do just have an analysis of human nature, which I regard as consistent. And I also have Satan's consistent response to deconversions historically and in the present. Who are the most ardent and effective atheists? In our day, are they the ones who were irreligious, who had no background in religion? No. The ones who get championed by the atheists most of all are the ones who were raised in some fundamentalist Christian home who know the Bible inside and out. Satan loves deconversion stories. So if Paul deconverts, he's probably not going to be killed is more likely to have been celebrated like never before. So he can end it. With this in mind, here is the hit list again. And I'll go through it very briefly to remind you of the nature of his suffering. Goes from wealthy to poor, loses everything and everyone from his former life, suffers profound physical distress, imprisoned constantly, slandered by his own spiritual children, suffered as a result of his desire to mortify the flesh, suffered from extreme anxiety because of his apostolic duties. And what also needs to be borne in mind is the duration of this. This is sustained destruction and unspeakable abuse and the ongoing daily pain that derives from it over the course of a quarter century. As I indicated in all my reading, I'm unfamiliar with another account like this from any other religion. I've read lots of stories along the order of a monk who hops himself up on opioids and lights himself on fire. And that certainly makes a statement, right? But then he doesn't really feel his pain, nor has he afforded himself the opportunity to reconsider because once that match is lit, it's done. Paul has a quarter century to reconsider. And every moment 
is filled with chronic pain from the beatings he has already received, but then he is ever receiving more and more, causing more and more chronic pain. From 195 lashes with a Roman whip. In addition to that, he has anxiety. He struggles to quell and all the rest. But through it all, he still presses on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And why does he press on? There can only be one answer to that question in light of all that he has suffered, and it is because he is certain. He knows. He's not thinking, he's not guessing, he's not hoping as the world conceives of hope. And here is what he is certain of, that our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself, Philippians 3. For him, the next life is more real than the current. My point is simply this. What can be broken given enough pressure and enough time is going to be broken. This is the reason why no other faith has a Paul, because no other faith is real. They are all breakable. Therefore, none of them can endure this. And in the final analysis, there ain't no way of getting around this. I think about how this is reported in the first century. Now, say enemies of God, says the reporter for the so-called Jerusalem Times, circa A.D. 30-something. You know, Saul of Tarsus, ravager of the followers of the way, has just become a follower of the way himself. How do you account for this? Well, easily, that's how. Man had a seizure and mistook it for a divine vision. Or he wanted to go from being a big fish in our faith to being the biggest fish in theirs. But in either event, he is like Jesus, either a lunatic or a liar. But now fast forward. Say enemies of God, says the reporter for the Jerusalem Times, circa AD 60-something, Saul of Tarsus, ravager of the followers of the way, who became a follower of the way himself, endured suffering as no mere man ever has for the cause of Christ and never, ever broke over the course of a quarter century. How do you account for that? There is no way to account for that. As I said, there's exactly one explanation for endurance like that, and it's that Paul never fell because King Jesus would not let him because King Jesus actually was King Jesus and still is. And so there's no ripcord needed and none would be, Paul, well, none would be Paul pulled because Paul has been made a new creation and what has been made new by Christ cannot be unmade. A sheep cannot become a pig again once more to wallow in the mud. Point number five, Paul's suffering completes what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Paul's suffering completes what is lacking in Christ's affliction. That statement makes me sound like a heretic, so before you run me out, let me make known to you that that is in fact a direct quote from the man himself. Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I do not... I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, does Paul question the finality, sufficiency, or efficacy of Christ's afflictions for sinners' salvations? Not quite, and that's me being hyperbolic. Of course he doesn't. And we'll just flip over one chapter from where we previously were to prove this. There are many, many other places where he talks about the sufficiency of Christ, but Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So Jesus did it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It's all him. But what is meant by filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions then by his suffering? Well, this is in fact a consequence of the concept behind Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Christ incarnate has well and forever finished his sufferings for our salvation and our sanctification and our glorification. But Christ is, in a sense, not done suffering 
and that when his people suffer, he suffers with them. It is in this sense that the cup of our Lord's suffering is not full, and so we must fill it up, and he must fill it as our co-sufferer, and we together must fill it in anticipation of the consummation and our collective glory with Christ's experience post-consummation. And that's why the whole statement reads in Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might carry fully out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifest to the saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. This anticipation of the consummation and beyond is also why he began the chapter in the book with this. Colossians 1, 3 and 5. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Now with this said, consider again Paul's statement in, in Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, what is being filled up must be able to be made full. Otherwise, it would not be being filled up. So, therefore, there is an end. And that end signifies something. When the cup of Christ's suffering through his people is entirely up to the brim, not for salvation, but for the success of his kingdom, then comes this. Revelation 18, chapter 18 through 21, we will skim though. Starting in verse 20 of chapter 18, rejoice over her, that's Babylon the great, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Moving forward, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. And forward again, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And fast forward again, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among men, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And as I read earlier, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. But as I read about the end of suffering and no more tears, I wondered to myself, which saint is going to shed that last tear? Which one of the Lamb's little lambs is the last to suffer ever before there is no more suffering? I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that there will be a last, and I know that Shiloh will wipe their cheek dry right after having taken his rod and thrust it right through the center of the rebellious nations, shattering them forever. Each saint down through history 
has through their suffering advanced in this way, the ultimate conclusion of history, as it is orchestrated by God. Each one has pushed it that much more. Pushed the ball down the field, you might say, that much more. Now, Paul advanced it much. We advance it little. But that cup is filling. There is an end. The afflictions of Christ will be made full through the sufferings of his body, and then suffering will be no more. Point number six. Paul's suffering is a pathway to sharing in Christ's glory. 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 11. We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which we endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering for after all it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. Weak people who are being destroyed by wicked men need to hear that, don't they? Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his power. When he comes to be magnified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. To this end, also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of his calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's step back, way back. Why did God create man with an intellectual capacity and emotional capacity and spiritual capacity that are uniquely acute amongst all his other earthly creatures? Because God is glorious and he wants us to be able to perceive his glory. Ergo, he creates us with sufficient acuity in faculties to enable these perceptions. And what I'm saying is is that you can't see the light of the sun if you don't have eyes. And you can't see the light of God's glory without a mind and a heart and a soul sufficient to the task. But then we fell into sin in our father Adam, and so these perceptions in their full were lost. And so Christ came to die for us that we may regain them. But this is the gift of grace. And grace is understood through lack. Grace is the gift of what you don't have and don't deserve. And we will celebrate this gift of saving grace forever, but we must understand grace in order to perceive it. But we, like Paul, are constitutionally dull creatures, even having been redeemed. So we, like him, must be taught of the Lord that his grace is sufficient for us and his power is perfected in weakness. And God's grace is, of course, his glory. Thus, the path to perceiving and sharing in the glory of God is your suffering for him. And as good of an example as Paul is of this, he is not near the best one. Jesus is. Christ crucified, risen, and ascended is the greatest manifestation of God's glory, and so here is its glorious result, according to Paul. Ephesians 1, skimming. He, the Father, chose us in him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And that is his glory. And that is what we share in if we now share in his pain. So the question I close with is this. Will you share in his glory? Do you drink from the cup of his suffering that you may then drink from the cup of his glory?
that you may stand with the King of glory, beneficiary of all that he has done, dwelling in his courts forever. Have you turned to Jesus? Because the atheistic perspective is never true, but it's far more true of you, at least with respect to your personal situation. Pain will just be pain, and then you'll die. And for you, there will be no redemption. The Lord will redeem it at the consummation, as he will redeem all pain. But it will have no personal benefit to you. You will suffer in this life irrespective because we are fallen creatures in a fallen world. The question is, what will become of your suffering? And we who suffer for Christ must remember to suffer well because our suffering has great value and it is teaching the world much about our Lord and it is teaching others in the church much about our Lord. Make sure that the lesson that you're giving is true and not a misrepresentation of his character and his nature and his power and his grace. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for all these things. Lord, I pray that you take my words and in spite of myself, I pray that you press them into the souls of your people and give them great hope that we may endure this life well. And we praise you and thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.